So we're going to dive in and pick right back up where we were last week with our series called How to Neighbor. <clears throat> we started this a couple weeks ago, so if you, you weren't with us, uh, we were just talking about this big idea that, that Jesus gave us. He said, look, the, the greatest commandments are this, like love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. And the second one is a lot like it. It's, it flows from the love of God into our neighbor, so loving your neighbor uh, as yourself and to, to take care of our neighbor. And so we've just been exploring that, and I feel like this is such a weighty topic in the world we're living in today where there's just not, we just question if, if, if this is really being immersed from the church like it, it ought to be. And many times we're, we're caught in the crosshairs of trying to do what God's called us to do, but trying to cling to the truth that God's called us to. And so we're just going to continue to explore this today. Um, so I, I began my college journey in the music department. And one day, uh, as a freshman, I was very busy. I never took less than 17 hours in college. So I always took 17, 18, or 19 hours because I'm stupid like that. And I uh, always had to get approval from deans and like presidents of departments and stuff in order to take that many hours. But I was real busy one day and was coming flying out of the music department and went to back up really quickly. And maybe you've done this before, but when I did, I had my wheel turned and I scraped the car next to me. Has anybody ever done that before or had that happen to you where someone scraped the car? And immediately I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm broke, I'm in college and uh, what little savings I had going into my freshman year was, you know, very quickly going away. And here I have scraped this Mitsubishi Eclipse next to me, and I don't have money. I'm scared, but I have this decision to make. In my busyness, am I going to leave without telling anyone, without fessing up to what I did, or to take care of the damage, or... Am I going to write a note, right? That's usually the classic kind of appropriate thing. Write a note, leave it there with my phone number, my information, um, of course, my insurance information, all that stuff to give that to them and said, hey, I'll take care of anything. I'm so sorry. Um, I had to make that decision. Have you ever been in that situation before where like you had something happen, not sure how to handle it, and we're stuck with a real moral dilemma, not really a dilemma, but a decision, a moral decision we have to make. And I'd love for you to tell you that your pastor made the right decision in that moment, but I didn't. I, I backed out and I took off because fear and all kinds of other things. So fast forward about a year and a half from then, um, God's done a lot of work in my life, in my character, and I come to another opportunity where I'm parallel parking, and I think I'm a really good parallel parker. Like, I, I, I don't feel like there's a lot of things that I, like, I just take pride in, I'm really good at, but I feel like I'm a really good parallel parker. Not something to be super excited about, but I, I'm, I'm proud of it. And so I, I parallel parked, and somehow in that process, I nudged, nudged the van in front of me. And um, I got out, and it was nowhere in the same kind of realm of circumstances because there was just a tiny little scratch this time. And I'm, I'm dealing with this, and I'm like, oh, gosh, I bumped this van. It's a rusty old van. And so I'm like, God had been working on me. I've been convicted about that since. Like, I'm still convicted about the time before here, you know, however many years later. And I have this moment, and it's kind of the same decision. But in this situation, like, it's a tiny little scratch. And then I, I begin to look, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to do the right thing. And then I go look, and I can't find any paper, and I don't have a pen, like, you know, so, so be it, like with a college student with no paper, no pen in my car, and I'm looking, and I don't have anything. 
And so now in this moment where I'm trying to do the right thing, I, I could excuse it because it was just a tiny little scratch, and I could excuse it and justify it because I can't find pen or paper, and I just said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do the right thing. This has been like haunting me, so to speak, for a year and a half, and I'm going to do the right thing. And so I, I actually end up scrumming up some um, uh, paper and pen, and I begin to write the note, and I'm on the, the hood of the, the van as I'm writing it. Um, Dr. Castleberry comes walking up, and it's one of my professor's van. <laughs> and uh, of course, it was just a, just a little scratch, and he wasn't upset at all. He's just one of the nicest people in the world. He's like, oh, it's just a rusty old van. Don't worry about it. He's like, my kids do more damage than that. And every time they get in, and uh, he said, don't worry about it. He said, I'm not going to worry about it. I don't want you to ever worry about this again. And I was just like, oh, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> I was just so thankful for that. And in both of those circumstances, I could begin to look and think through that from the other person's perspective. Try to feel what they felt like. Can you just imagine being the person in the Mitsubishi Eclipse when they came out to it? Maybe you've done this before. You've come out to your car and someone has swiped it or done something like that. And like, what, what does that feel like? Anger? <laughs> Frustration? Like, what kind of moron with no character will leave? Like, there's just so much anger in that moment that when something like that happens. How could someone be so careless to not even leave a note? Right? There's emotion that I begin to think about what I would feel like in that circumstance. But you know what? I wasn't thinking about that at that time or even the second opportunity to, to do the right thing. I, I wasn't thinking about that. No, no, the thing that was on my mind the whole time, that it was about my character and my relationship with God. It, it, it really wasn't about, about really putting myself in their shoes. All I could deal with was this is about who God's called me to be and the right thing that I'm called to be. And, it, and that helped me push past the excuses and the justifications that I could make for it. I tell you those stories to put that in kind of the background, in the background of the landscape that I want to talk to you about today on empathy, which is really about feeling what other people are feeling, trying to put ourselves in their shoes. And I want to take this further by exploring the topic of divine empathy, that Jesus Christ felt what we feel, and even in this very moment, whatever we're going through, he, he's, he knows, and he feels it. And so to introduce the idea of empathy, I'm going to have best-selling author Brene Brown join us via telecast here um, to, to explain uh, empathy probably better than what I could. So what is empathy, and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions where empathy is relevant and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. <laughs> recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, and climb down. I know what it's like down here. And you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, <laughs> it's bad, uh-huh. Uh, no. You want a sandwich? <laughs> um...
Empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice, because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time. Because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful, and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. At least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. She probably explained that much better than I could in this whole idea of the whole and entering into the whole to, to feel uh, I want to explore that um, with Christ in, in our lives, in the life that he calls us to, to our neighbor. And many times we'll take a full chapter or we'll look at, at, at a whole story. I, I literally want to take one verse with you this morning. One verse at the end of chapter 5 in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. If you spent any time around um, my teaching um, or been here for a, a while you'll know that 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and 5 gets brought up pretty regularly in my ministry because I think that in, in chapter 3 through 5 of 2 Corinthians, Paul really summarized a lot of the letters and what God has called us to, to be embodying the gospel. And I think that's really summarized really plainly for a way that's very descriptive for us to understand and live out um, and that all ends here on the very last verse of chapter 5, verse 21, and that's where we're going to look. And it's a very simple scripture, and I just want to teach through this and talk through this one verse, chapter 5, verse 21. Here it is. God made him who had no sin to be, be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me read it again. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Seems like a pretty straightforward text. Let me give you a little more context about the Roman Greco society that they're in at this time. They had a belief that the gods, because there's so many gods in the, the Greek understanding, Roman Greco understand. They believed that the gods could come to the aid of humans. They could toss a sandwich into the hole, if you will. But they could not feel, they could not empathize with humans. This is revealed through the teachings of Aristotle, uh, as well as in Homer's Iliad, through a quote like this, such is the way the gods spun life for unfortunate mortals, that we live in unhappiness, but the gods themselves have no sorrows. So to Paul's readers that are in this Roman Greco society, they're, they're thinking that, they, they can't, that God cannot feel with them. He can bring aid, but even the idea of one God 
that Jews have withheld to for centuries and thousands of years that, that he can't feel. And this is a, a change in understanding for them to, to non-believers that would hear this truth and this message. Uh, and it's important for us to grab a hold of what is really being said here. You can go back to the text. Um, I, I could even say this another way. Uh, maybe say it this way. Jesus left the glory of heaven to endure the pains of hell on earth so that we might experience and usher the glory of God in this fallen world. Jesus left the glory of heaven to endure the pains of hell on earth so that we might experience it for ourselves and then usher in the glory of God in this fallen world that we live. I had one of my most brilliant professors tell me, he's gone on to be with the Lord now, but he said, Kyle, make the list of things that you would live and die for rather short. And there are very, there's a, there's a, a, a number of mountain, theological mountains that I will live and die on. There's some that I won't live and die on. And what I mean that is not a physical life and death, but just that I, I, I'm not going to fight you to the death on this is a, a life or death eternal matter. But but there, there are some that are without question the principal foundational things of life. I won't go through all of them, but a few of them that this text points us to very directly. One is that the virgin birth is a non-negotiable for believers. That if we remove that Jesus was born of divine nature and human, that he was fully divine and fully human, if we remove that fact, then he was not sinless, which is another non-negotiable. He had to be sinless or else he is not a pure and spotless sacrifice to redeem us. And it had to be of divine nature and sinless and then the resurrection of Christ would be another. And so there's a, a few of these and, and we have to grab a hold of this fact that, that, that Jesus was... Sinless, and that's a different kind of understanding and tough for us to, to grab a hold of. I think that um, for me, I, I was, I know many of us, many of you were not raised in, in church. I, I grew up in the church, and, and this, we had this thing called Sunday school where you met, and you, you know, you put the little felt things, and you memorize scriptures, and um, and, and like a 12-year-old boy that was, you know, being forced to, to memorize scriptures. Like we had to memorize, and what's your favorite verse we would get asked by our teacher? And then what do you think all the boys said? Jesus wept. <laughs> you know, and like we, and we kind of giggled behind it, and like we didn't take it very seriously. And that was just the shortest and easiest one for us to remember. And later in young, when I was um, probably late teenage years after I was really just fall, really falling in love with Jesus, I began to think on that. And I, I, growing up in the church, God had given me faith to believe that Jesus was indeed divine. But the fact that he was also human was a lot for me to take in. I, did, I, did, I kind of felt like a little bit Greek in some ways. That I didn't feel that he felt what I was feeling. I didn't think that he understood what I was going through. Because he was, come on, he's He's Jesus. He doesn't know what I'm going through. He doesn't understand this pain that I'm feeling right now. So that was actually the harder thing for me. And so I actually began to fall in love with that verse. Jesus wept because it just slapped me in the face one time. It's like, whoa. He felt it. Like he, he, he really did climb down that ladder and get in the hole with us here. And he felt it. That's a difficult thing for us to understand 
but he, he felt it all. Like if you've been um, abandoned or deserted by friends, check, he felt that. If you've been verbally abused, check, he felt that. If you've been physically abused, check, he felt that. If, if your motives have been questioned, if, if no one believed you at the time, check. If you've had loss and death in your life, he, he, that's what he was weeping over, his friend Lazarus. He's, check, he's felt that. And we could go on and on that he felt it. But still, this is this concept, this duality of Jesus' nature that he is fully human and fully divine is difficult for us to understand. I, I often describe it like this in the best way that I know how. If everybody in the room will just take one hand and put it over one of your eyes. Just go ahead and do it with me. Just a little exercise. Okay, now someone could slap you from that side and you would not see it coming, right? Because we've lost some peripherals. We've, you can go ahead and take it down. You could do the same thing with your other eye to get the full effect. But we lose the peripherals. Yeah, your eyes will take a second to adjust, right? Um, we lose some peripherals. We lose some depth perception and we lose perspective in our human nature, but Jesus being fully divine and born of a Virgin Mary was actually able to, when, when he, he had full divinity and perfect perspective through his divine nature, he could feel everything as God felt it. When his friends deserted him and when they failed, he, he felt what, G, what God himself, because he is God himself, felt and when he was struggling uh, to, to in the garden and saying, not my will, he was struggling fully human, but empowered, fully divine. And, and it's that as if he had both perceptions and could see both perfectly clear and lost no peripherals and lost no depth perception and no perspective. He, he had the full gamut of experience. And so when we see the depth of emotion in Jesus, highs and lows, that's the depth of divine and humanity meeting in perfect unity. And I believe that's what God has called us into, to, to be okay with being human. Like, be okay with feeling what's actually being felt with the person in front of us or in our own life. But, the, but to understand that we are empowered with hope to feel what God has placed inside of us in the hope of Jesus Christ. Um, there's so much here, you know, in, that, in this text, in this one verse. I want to go to the end of it for just a moment and talk about this term or this phrase, the righteousness of God. The righteousness, it like, sounds like a big, maybe theological word that we don't totally grab a hold of. Let me try to break it down and make it a little bit more practical for us. First, in the Old Testament, there was a perception um, because Jesus had not yet entered into the world. John 1.1 1, 1 tells us that he had eternally existed. In the beginning was the word, was Jesus. He was with the Father at that time. But in the earth, and the feeling and entering into the whole had not happened uh, until the New Testament. But really until Jesus was born. But in the Old Testament, the righteousness of God <clears throat> meant one thing. And then in the New Testament, it would take on a much fuller meaning. In the Old Testament, the righteousness of God was really about the perfect <coughs> nature of God's just character, the, perfect, the perfection of God's just character. 
So in a situation where something bad had happened or someone did something wrong, and even the passage we see in Leviticus that talks about loving um, your neighbor as yourself, that wasn't just Jesus said that, that was actually said in the book of Leviticus as well. And it's said there, and he said, love your neighbor as yourself and don't take revenge for yourself. And then basically in this whole concept would be that, that God's just character, his righteousness, his right thinking, his right actions would take care of it. Like God is not going to let justice not be served like we do in our court systems today when justice is not served. At the end of time, justice will be served and we will either have found ourselves in Christ and find righteousness through him or we will um, have not. And so through this idea of perfection of God's just character, it's basically saying this, that perfection and another way to look at the word righteousness is rightness. Just cut out the ch- rightness, God's rightness, that truth and beauty and love come from him. They flow from him, not to him. It, it's God's perfection of his just character. So for you and I, we struggle to find what is true about this. What is the right situation? God doesn't question it. He doesn't think about it. It doesn't flow from our opinion to his, but truth, beauty, and love emanate from him. And that is the righteousness of God and his just character, that he can never act unrighteously, whereas us, we cannot act righteously in our own ability, okay? And so let's flip over to the New Testament tef- uh, definition, and this begins to be expanded. Like, this is still true, the righteousness of God, but in the Old Testament, it's referred to more in God's character. In the New Testament, it really speaks of um, the, the perfecting process of God's people, the perfecting of God's people. And I'll put this in two different ways. One is declarative in that we have no rightness in our own. This is what the prophet Isaiah said. He said that our righteousness, our right thinking, what we think's right, what we think is wrong, is like filthy rags compared to God's righteousness. He's using a very vulgar term in that time, and still today it's gross. It's the idea of like used feminine products. He's like, it's like, it's like that's our righteousness on our very best day is like filthy waste in comparison to him. And so if that's true, what we're talking about in the righteousness of God is that, that through Jesus, through him entering into the hole for us and burying our sins, like the scripture says, that we through faith in the grace that happens in that, time, in that moment, that we are declared righteous. Not of our works so that no man can boast. It's a, it's a gift. It's a simple gift in which we say, I believe in you, Jesus, as the Savior of my sins and the Lord of my life. And I receive the gift of salvation. It's not, hey, this is my resume, Jesus. What do you think, man? I left the note. Pretty proud of me. I walked the old lady across the street. Where's my pat on the back? You know, I gave that, that homeless guy $10. Where's my tenfold, Jesus? You know, it, it's, it's not bringing our resume because our resume is filthy rags. As believers, when we put faith in Jesus and receive the gift, our resume becomes Jesus, and Jesus alone is our resume. He is our righteousness, and he has declared that upon us, not of works, so that we can't boast. Like, that's the, that's the simple gospel there. The second part of that is that it's transformative, and I think we see this in the text here of what Paul is saying, is that 
when we know that truth, when we know that gift and that grace of God, it changes us in profound ways. What we end up calling in theological terms sanctification, that there is this ongoing work of salvation, that like I am declared righteous, but there is this ongoing thing that as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 12, that I'm being transformed by the renewing of my mind so that I can test and approve what God's perfect will is so that I, I can actually see the difference. I, like everything's being uh, cleansed and purified as I um, uh, find myself in submission to God on a daily basis. And so I don't want to confuse it with the idea of sanctification, the ongoing process, but that that process presents itself in that we start looking more like Christ. This, if you asked, what's more Christ-like, to leave, <laughs> to leave the, the, the dinged-up car without a note or to leave the note you know, and take care of it? Well, Jesus probably would have gone far further than what I did in that time, but it's closer. And so it's the process that I begin to look more and think more like God does as I'm being transformed by this truth that he has declared me righteous through his works and not my own. And so we begin to have um, what appears to be an, an appearance of Christ and that we realize that we are what Paul says just before this, we are ambassadors of Christ. It's as if God is declaring his message of the gospel through you and I. And if that feels like a heavy weight, it should and it is because God has called you and I to that. And this word here that I, I want to pick up on is this Greek word, ginomai, which means to become, to arise, to fulfill. And go, you go back to 521, the, the text, so that we might become the righteousness of Christ, that we might arise to that. And I'm just telling you, church, all across this nation right now and in this city and in your cubicle and in your home, there is a longing for us to arise and to walk into the fulfillment of the righteousness of God because we need it. Like we need it in our world for the people of God to be the people of God and to not sit on our hands and not to, to sit back and think somebody else is going to take care of it, to just be present with what's right in front of because that is what Jesus did. He came, he was present, and he felt and he experienced it. I'll tell you, um, ministry will take you on some wild, crazy rides. And there was a time, I, and I often share this, but I didn't always love people. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I know some of you in the room, like you just don't love people if you were really honest with yourself. I just don't. There was a time where I was actually studying ministry and knew God had called me to this. And I just prayed a really honest prayer. I said, God, I don't like people. I just don't. If you want me to um, do this, then you've got you've to make me care because I just don't care right now. And that's a, that's a problem. I see it's a problem. You've got to help me here. And from that time became just got to answer that prayer tenfold to a deep, deep passion for people. And, and I genuinely love people now. It's not something that I had naturally. God divinely, I believe, supernaturally gave it to me. Um, but ministry will give you all these crazy opportunities to feel with people. It is the call of the believer uh, that Paul says, rejoice when one another rejoice. And mourn with those that mourn. Like there is this experience of empathy that we are called to, to feel what others are feeling. It's been years ago, we were living in Georgia, and 
and had a, a young lady, she was in her probably early 30s, um, come marching in my office with her boyfriend or husband, I really don't remember what their situation was, but um, came in there, and she was obviously what appeared to be in a lot of pain. You could tell it was probably emotional and not physical, but she was she was weeping and in and out and just trying to hold it all together, and her the guy that was with her said, hey, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to let her talk when she's ready. We're, we're here. She, she needs somebody to talk to. And uh, eventually she would work herself to a place where she could tell me that a couple days prior she had been raped at a truck stop and that she had uh, been lured into this kind of shady space and, and been raped. And I just sat listening as a young pastor and thinking through what, what, do you, what do you say? I'm having trouble, like I'm willing to get in the hole, but I'm having trouble getting in the hole and feeling what this feels like. A couple of weeks ago, I was sitting in here and having a, a meeting in the office, and a guy came walking in the door, and he had um, uh, kind, of, kind of shaggy hair um, situation and looked really thin, and uh, he, you could tell he had been in the sun a lot, his skin, he had gotten a really dark tan. And he had a large sack that he had been carrying, you could tell. And I looked out, and he had a bike. So I could tell he's been traveling. I'm just using my CIA skills, my Sherlock skills, and just taking in all the clues here. And he says, um, I just need some prayer today. He said, I, I, I've ridden my bike here from Lebanon, Ohio, or wherever he was at in Ohio. He said, and I've come to St. Augustine to die. I've never heard that phrase before in my life. I've come here to die. And I was just like, okay, here's another moment. Divine empathy, like how do I get into this? And he says, I was diagnosed with cancer just over six months ago. He said, I should be dead now. He said, my family's kind of walked away from me in this time, and I've got a friend down here, and I've just come to die with them. I was just like, whoa. How do I deal with this? Um, and then the past two weeks, I've had the same homeless veteran walk in the door and needing help, and he's hungry and doesn't have a place to stay, and apparently he was sleeping out in the woods next door and just needing the next meal. And so I, I've seen a lot of these opportunities, and you've, you've seen these in your life. Maybe it's a coworker or, or a friend or a family member or just a random person on the street that God just plants right in front of you. We're struggling. How do we get in this? How do we get down this ladder? It feels like I don't have the tools to get down this ladder. And I, I don't know what it's like to be raped. And I don't know what it's like to be homeless. I don't know what it's like to, to be dying of cancer. But I begin to think to myself, I, I do know what it's like to be lonely. I do know what it's like to feel disgusting. And I do know what it feels like to be hungry. And on that dial, I mean, the difference between major and minor surgery is that mine's major and yours is minor. That's always the classic saying. And in those situations, even on my best embodiment of divine empathy in that moment, I just know a fraction. And so what I attempt to do, and I think what Brene Brown was saying, and what, what I believe that Jesus 
would lead us to in this life is that whatever measure of feeling and emotion we can identify there, we just take that dial and just ramp it up and just imagine it's probably 10 to 50 times more in depth than what we can actually feel in and of ourselves. And in that time, we just sit and we're present and we do the work of the Holy Spirit as his hands and feet, the body of Christ, said, hey, I'm here. I'm here. In those, I didn't have answers for any of those scenarios I just described to you. Zero answers for any of them. But what I could do and the same thing that you can do is just to be present and listen in the right moment say, I hope you know that Jesus loves you and that I love you and I'm present with you. I'm not going to silver line this. I, I don't know how many times in a counseling situ- situation you just need to say, this sucks. <laughs> Sorry if you don't like that word. This, this is rough. I, I literally cannot imagine this. And just feel and just sit and be present in that moment with them. Because it's in that we do the work of God to heal and to listen. And we have an opportunity to point people towards Jesus in that. By being present. By being present. It's not an accident that you are present in that moment. But I think the truth of it for most of us is we've become very numb to pain in our own life and in our world. And we find reasons because we can't find pen or paper. We find every reason to not stay and leave the note. We, but kind of circling back there, it's not, a, it, I think for me, the process has always been, it's not even about the empathy first. I think that comes second. It's about who God has called me to be, that I might become the righteousness of God. And I can't tell you how many of those moments in my life have turned into complete God moments. Complete God moments. We're just being present. God gave a word and I'm able to share it. And it brings encouragement. It brings strength and it brings peace. And it's not a matter of being whatever a counselor. It's just being present and being sons and daughters of God. And, and that we might arise and fulfill the, the com- command and the call here to be the hands and feet of Jesus. I think this text is powerful. And, but it, but we're moving too fast sometimes, like me, like swinging out and just wanting to move on with our days. And if we're moving too fast to listen and feel, we're just moving too fast. And as a recovering workaholic, I've been there and lived that over and over and over again, and I've never had a tighter relationship with God than when I practice the Sabbath and when I'm present with the people that's in front of me. Like, and I think there's a few things that come out of this, and I'll just share these in close. One, I believe that when we practice divine empathy, allowing God to lead us there, allowing the pains of Jesus in our presence in that moment, I believe that I I can love God more fully. You know what happened when I walked back into that meeting? I was just... really grateful for the life that God had given me. When I walked away from that, that homeless veteran and doing what little I, I could in that situation with, with all of these, I, I went back home and when I prayed with my kids at night, man, when we said, God, thank you for a house, like we meant it. 
I was able to be truly grateful to the Lord for what he's given me and blessed me with. I think divine empathy deepens our walk with God. I think that it allows us to connect more purely and honestly with our neighbor. And if we're going to love them genuinely, not falsely, one of the things I love about this house and the culture that's here is that when we ask how you're doing, like we, we want to know the real answer. And I try to practice that. So when somebody said, how you doing this morning? It's like, great, brother. No, I didn't give them that. I said, um, I feel weird. I feel weird. I think it was because I had laid around yesterday and my body's like, yeah, I want more. But I was just able to be honest. And so I love that about you, that you, we can be real here and be honest. And I think that divine empathy allows us to love our neighbor more purely and more honestly. And then I think we become more like Christ. Maybe the final thing that we just we we become the righteousness of God. We become the hands and feet of God. Let's walk in that church. Let's walk in be Jesus to somebody. Be the comfort of the Holy Spirit to somebody this week. We're not going to be able to touch them all, but do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Let the conviction of the character and the calling that God has called us to compel us to this place where we're slowing down, we're listening, we're present with those around us. And I just, and I just believe, I'm just crazy and bold enough to believe that like in your life, not my life this week, in, in person that's went to school for counseling and ministry, no, like I believe in your life this week, there, like if you just pray for an opportunity, God's going to rock your world with a story that you don't know how to get into the hole with, but you can just faithfully just picture Jesus get into the hole to feel. And then when you can just scratch onto some bit of that, what that feels like just to ramp it up and to begin to just speak life, to speak encouragement, to speak the hope of God that we have in Christ. Don't try to give them all the wisdom in the world. Just the truth of Christ is what sets us free. And so I want to ask you to stand. We're going to pray and ask that God would lead us out, lead us out into the city to make a genuine difference because I'm telling you, they're, they're all around us, that people need to hear this truth. They, they need to experience the love of God in this way. Let's pray, and Taryn's going to come invite us to the table this morning. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for Jesus who made a way for us, who, be, who had zero sin but became sin for us. We, we sit in complete gratitude this morning, God, that you are faithful, and what you started, you have made complete, God, and you will continue to complete it in us. God, in this body, I pray that as we go forward, God, we will walk in the fullness and the courage that it takes in the posture of submission to say, God, I want to be used of you this week. I want to listen to someone. I want to be present with someone. Just be your hands and feet, God. We love you, and we just celebrate this time in worship. Christ's name.